All right, Zach, we should be live. Um, let's we did it. Give it a second. And um, yeah, usually it tells me, okay, so it's starting to queue up now. I think there's a bit of a lag on your side, but it's like small milliseconds when you talk. Or like, I think it's more so your camera than your voice. Interesting. Um, so people are coming in. Yeah, sometimes it like slows up a little bit. Maybe it's a bandwidth issue on my end. But uh, we got about 15. You can see up in the lower left-hand corner, at least on my side, there's a few people in the comments feed. Um, so anyway, without further ado, I appreciate you coming on. Um, yeah, it's exciting to talk to you. I, I know you guys are one of the very first, um, supporters of the game, got the word out, got a lot of people interested in it. So it's a lot of how a lot of people heard of it. I heard, hear that all the time. Um, so I wanted to like, start with like, there's that aspect of it. People that know who you are, know your background. And then it's funny. I was just on, um, you know, Ed Bear Jr. That was just announced for the mini set. Um, sure. he's doing these live streams, like through his Patreon, where he's like painting live for mar insane marathon sessions, like five to eight oh. hours stretch. And you could just Crazy. hang out like you're in his garage with him, you know, or in his studio and he's just chit chatting. And we talk a lot about sorcery. Sometimes Eric's in there and other fans of the game. And we were, he was, so he was doing one yesterday and I was telling him about this pre-order you guys have going on. And he was like, Oh, I haven't heard of those guys. Like, are they on the sorcery website or like, how do I find them? How do I direct my fans to them? That kind of thing. So to answer that for people that are newer to the game and don't know your background, <laughs> can you tell us a little bit about your background, your store, and what you guys are all about? Yeah, for sure. So, uh, our company is covenant and, um, started ultimately a long time ago now, a little over 16 years and had a couple, uh, Realistically, we're just a group of people that played tabletop games together um, and started a company. And um, we grew up playing a lot of games in the... So, like, I got into card games uh, as a kid when... the I'll date myself here, but uh, when the Pokemon TCG first came out. And mm -hmm. I was at the right age at the right time, and I played uh, the Game Boy games and watched the show. My older brothers had always collected comic book cards and baseball cards. And so... To me, it was kind of like my, it was my thing. It was my first thing. I uh, got really into Pokemon with my little brother. And then that led us, we, we, we did that for a couple of years. And then we started getting into what I would consider kind of indie games. So Magic Pokemon kind of doing their thing. Yu-Gi-Oh! comes out, it's doing its thing. And we played a ton of other games, right? Like we played Star Wars TCG, Star Wars CCG, Lord of the Rings TCG, um, Dragon Ball Z back in the day, the old, old school one. And the list just goes on. And so we kind of grew up in our teenage years playing these games, going to tournaments, going to events. And uh, we never really played the big games. And so for us, we were always kind of an afterthought for the local stores and local communities and that kind of thing. A lot of experiences get kicked off tables for magic tournaments and all that kind of business. So uh, when I was in college, I had a couple of really uh, not so great experiences <laughs> with online and local stores and like this is back in 2000 late 2006 um mm -hmm. and for me and and for us uh, tabletop games is just this very profound experience it's where we made a lot of our best friends had a lot of our favorite memories and then just got the feeling uh, and it was way worse back then but the feeling that not a lot of people really cared about the hobby uh at the level that we felt it is it deserved you know, not even just what we would want as like, we, our experience should be better, but it's like tabletops is too important for people to not care. Um, so mm -hmm. that those kind of experiences led to the start of the company. And we've spent the past 16 years, um, supporting a lot of, I think games and communities that are traditionally underserved and creating products and services, uh, aimed at making tabletop better 
right? Making making the industry better itself. So there's a long story in there, but we played a ton of games. Um, we opened our, that was 2007 when we started, and we opened our local store in 2012 for the first time physically. So we started out selling singles online for some collectible games. And then again, this is 2007-ish. Uh, so YouTube was pretty new. We started posting YouTube videos. Um, blogging was a new concept. So we started writing blog articles and all that kind of stuff. Um, and we're really obsessing over at the time it was the spoils TCG, which is a super indie, uh, old game that lasted for yeah, a couple heard of years. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and then I opened the physical store in 2012 and then, uh, upgraded from that store to, uh, what we call 2.0, the second version of our store in 2015, but our local store and we're from Tulsa, Oklahoma, um, middle, middle of the country. Um, mm, yep. And our focus from from the very beginning, both online and especially locally, um, was around the idea that uh, I think a lot of emphasis, especially in the 90s and the 2000s and even the 2010s, was put on the transaction. So selling stuff, right? Uh, We opened our store. If you ever see pictures of our first two stores, it's like 99% play space. So like... We had these custom tables made that were made of nice wood and we had nice chairs and we Mm -hmm. had like professional audio equipment. That's where we spent all our money on professional audio equipment and the sound and the light. Like we, um, it's really crazy because we, we uh, had very limited resources for a very long time. Mm -hmm. Um, and so our first store, we actually painted the ceiling black and installed can lights. Um, Mm -hmm. and it was the kind of situation, it's a story we tell a lot, but like, the the ceiling tiles were way more absorbent than we expected them to be so we're hand painting these tiles and like we just keep having to buy these paint buckets and i'm running the budget and running the numbers and it's just like oh my goodness this this paint is 200 dollars over budget that's going to kill us um Uh but all that to say uh for us tabletop as a, a hobby as something we do uh is really focused on playing right and so our our local space um is less of a store and more of a, a place for people to play games and a, a place for a okay. community to be built and that kind of thing. So uh, that's that's been our emphasis for a long time. Um, and that's kind of where we see things going uh, on the local level. But ultimately, uh, we do a lot of different things. I think the thing that we most people interact with us on our YouTube channel um, through our video content and yep. then through our subscription service. So we do this for a lot of different games, but you can sign up. And it's kind of like a better version of a pre-order. So, you, you know, with Sorcery, as an example, you could sign up for two, four, six boxes. And then uh, the first thing we're going to serve through our Sorcery subscription is actually Arthurian Legends, which is the second mm-hmm. set. We were back in the Kickstarter, so we assumed a lot of people would be as well. And that they wouldn't necessarily want that first, uh, you know, they wouldn't want beta or they wouldn't want whatever was before the, the actual second set. Uh, yep. So we decided that's what it's going to serve. But ultimately, even right now, like you could sign up for four <laughs> boxes, you pay nothing. And then about one to four weeks before Arthurian Legends comes out, you'll get charged mm-hmm. and we'll automatically ship it to you. Uh, it happens to come with an Altart exclusive promo um, that we partnered with Eric's Curiosa to be able to provide to, one for each box in the subscription. So you have four boxes, mm-hmm. you get four promos. Uh, and yeah, so the the content and then also the subscription are probably the two two things most people uh, interact with us uh, on a routine basis are. Yep. Hopefully gotcha. that answered your question. Yeah. Yeah. I was going to ask you about the store. Cause like, like you say, a lot of people know you from YouTube. I know you got a lot, a lot of followers on Twitter and whatnot. So when you're on YouTube, you're in this, like, is that like some back end of your store or something? That little studio space with a round table that you and Steven <laughs> hang out at and play games? 
So uh, a little backstory there. So we opened 1.0 in 2012, and then uh, we moved to 2.0 in 2015, and that was a really big upgrade. Uh, the space, uh, we went from like, I'm trying to think how big that first store was. So the first store was probably 700 square feet of space. Mm -hmm. um, and then the second store we upgraded, and I think it was like 18, 1900 square feet. Uh, better tables, but the whole facility was better. The whole area was better. But um, so we moved to 2.0 in 2015. A big part of that move was we wanted to start offering things like beer and wine and uh, <laughs> some stuff like that. So we did cool. that. Yeah. But then we got to 2016 and kind of just the recognition of our the fullest version of our vision for what we want our local space to be um, was not what 2.0 was. You know, budgets are limited spaces that you find are specific and there's restrictions and you only have so much time and so many resources and uh, so much you can commit to that kind of stuff. So in yeah. 2016, we that was the first time, I think, uh, after opening the store in 2012, when we started focusing really heavily online. Um, and a big part of why we were doing that was we knew we needed to get to a place where we had enough time and resources to invest in our local space as much as we wanted to, uh, to do it basically how we actually wanted to do it. So 2016 to 2020 for us was kind of this phase where we really focused on the store was doing well, 2.0, like it was uh, sustainable and profitable on its own thing. Um, but that's where we, we were putting our emphasis on our content and online offerings, like our subscriptions and our components. We do custom tokens and stuff for a lot of games. Um, mm -hmm. and sadly, uh, end of 2019, we we're having conversations about what we're going to do in 2020. And it's like, all right, it's finally time. Uh, the lease on our, our 2.0 store is going to be up um, in late 2020. And we have enough bandwidth that we think we can dedicate uh, you know, time and resources. So basically, do, do we have enough revenue coming in that we can justify several members of our staff spending their time working on our local store? Uh, and, you know, the return on the local effort is obviously scaled way down compared to online, right? Because you mm -hmm. do something online, the ups, the possible upside is very high. Um, but we had enough basically bandwidth, both in terms of just money and time that we could commit to developing what we call 3.0 uh, as much as we thought it would need to become what we the fullest version of what we were envisioning, right, for what a local space could be. And yeah. um, so first month of 2020, we start diving in. We're researching a bunch of different spaces. We're doing research on competitors and local stores all over the world. We're mm -hmm. really starting to have a lot of conversations and ramping up. And we're full steam ahead on 3.0. Uh, and then as yep. everyone's probably aware, March of 2020 happens, pandemic hits. Um, yep. And we were in a really precarious spot because our the landlord at 2.0 for us to renew our lease, they were not interested in short-term leases. And we're in the middle of a pandemic, so we don't know when we're gonna be able to be open again. And yet we're having to keep yeah. paying, you know, like our, so our 2.0 space was like half retail, half office. And yeah. that's where we used to have our studio, which uh, that, that's what you asked. So then we're getting yep. there. Um, <laughs> but we're, we're basically paying, you know, retail rates to use half of the space as an office. And during the pandemic, the only people that we had coming in the office were me and Steven to do the streams. Mm -hmm. Everyone else was remoting in. And then we would have one person at a time on the operations side coming in when Steven and I weren't there to pack orders and ship stuff and mm -hmm. do all that kind of stuff. Okay. Um, so we ended up making the decision to move to a temporary uh, facility and office like 
space. And that's where we're currently located. Um, and that's where the studio currently is. It's in the office. We have some office rooms with that, that setup in it. Uh, but okay. in 2021, we actually ended up um, buying some land um, that we uh, own. And then we started working with architects on concepts for the building we we're going to build uh, for 3.0. And that is okay. still in process now. Um, and okay. it, it's a crazy time to be building a building. <laughs> yeah. If you're, if you're otherwise unaware, <clears throat> uh, just, you know, we got done with one concept and then we're getting it quoted from contractors. And from the time we bought the land to the time it got quoted, the average price per square foot went up about 80%. Um, wow. And then not only that, there were materials involved that we wanted to use that were going to take 18 to 24 months to be available. Yep. So uh, anyways, it's it's been a process, but that's still, okay. that's the current state of the local uh, thing. We have land and we're planning to build a building. We're just working on plans and getting under budget. And then also just kind of letting the building market play out a little bit before we Gotcha. Commit. It's a significant uh, investment and risk for us. So mm -hmm. want to be smart about that. Okay, cool. Yeah. So it's a temporary space. Like I said, that's one of the things I've been wondering about because I didn't know that background. I hear you guys mentioned 3.0 from time to time. And you first of all, you stream like in the middle of the day. So anyone that's fully employed, you miss it live all the time, unfortunately. <laughs> yeah. I'm always like, damn, I wish I could have been part of like the the, the questioning, you know, the Q&A that you guys do as you're looking at the cards and all that kind of stuff. But yeah, so you got it looks good and your setup is nice. It looks high, it looks looks professional, but you don't have any art on the walls. So I was like, what are they doing there? Why aren't they getting some sorcery paintings <laughs> or uh, posters or something up there? So maybe yeah. in 3.0 we'll see something. But okay, yeah. So you got a mixed um online retail model. That answers uh one of the questions I had. I know you do a lot, like you said, you do the subscription type model, um, online, you know, sales you can order from your website, like most stores, but then also so in store play. That's going to be a big focus of 3.0. You guys do like local tournament scenes or like, is it um, like a membership? Like, how does that work? Yeah. Local play? Uh, well, <laughs> well, how it did play. work and how we're planning on it working are somewhat yeah. different. Um, okay. So 3.0 in, in both mm -hmm. space and just the business model of how it functions is going to be very unique, I think. Um, and it, it kind of all comes from, for us, uh, from the beginning with the local space, it was all about trying to be a fantastic place to play these games, right? Um, so yeah. with 3.0, we're building our own facility, right? And the one number one objective is create the perfect place to play tabletop games. Like that, that's that's the vision, right? We want the perfect place yep. to play. Um, and yeah, you know, we'll have stuff for sale and that's fine. But like, that's not a focus um, of, of what's going on. It It's necessary. People likely need to buy things, but ultimately, uh, create the perfect place to play games. And when we say games, that's not limited, right? I think a lot of people have a picture in their head of what that looks like. But for us, that's really expansive. That that includes tournaments. Um, but a ton of people in our previous stores that played these games um, aren't really competitive people, right? And and that's okay. a, a thing. That's a whole topic we can get into or not. But for us... Yeah, that's cool. Casual play yeah, is important. Yeah, it's, it's open for everybody. Uh, all the way down to like, you know, bridge and chess. Like if, if that's what you want to get into, okay. um, be in a space for that all the way to, you know, flesh and blood or sorcery or yeah. wh whatever, whatever that might look like. Uh, but okay. the second piece is like, uh, and this has kind of been a conversation going on in the TCG space in the past couple months and years. But Ultimately, uh, the recognition that we've seen for a while is a lot of the value that local retailers provide 
is centered around uh, there's you know product availability, but ultimately it's like education about products, uh, mm -hmm. play space, places for events to happen, building communities, hosting events, having a calendar, organizing all this stuff, having TOs, all that kind of business. Mm -hmm. um, and one of the really big challenges of tabletop today is historically, if you roll back to the nineties, uh, you know, publishers effectively incentivize the behaviors they wanted from retailers by giving retailers a discount to sell the product. Right. Uh, but in the nineties, you couldn't just go online and buy this product. You couldn't go on yeah. Amazon or TCG player or, you know, your Facebook group, right. Or yep. a buy, sell yeah. discord channel or whatever. Mm -hmm. Um, and so, uh, we started feeling in when we had our store open, uh, this friction where, you know, we were effectively, and we, we, I think we justifiably so like put a lot of effort and money into the space itself to make it a good place to play. Right. And we hosted mm -hmm. events and we had active calendars and we were, we, we grew up having to do all the work, um, of building communities yeah. and stuff as players. Mm -hmm. And so, uh, in 1.0 and 2.0, we were very intentional about, we didn't want our players to feel like they had to be the ones doing the work. Um, and then we were the ones just to get the transaction because we had a space where they could do this thing. Right. Um, yeah. So the just the reality of a lot of the value we were providing players had nothing to do with them buying product from us. And I have a really specific example I talk about a lot, but it was 2013 or 2014. And I had a really good friend um, who was in the store and he was buying a new wave of X-Wing ships for the Star Wars X-Wing game that, that was around. And he's like, hey, I just want to let you know, like, I could have bought these online and saved $100. Yeah. And that, that moment like cut right through me, right? Because mm. he's obviously close to me. He wants us to succeed. He also knew what we were going through on a deeper level in terms of, uh, you know, how hard it was and how tight things were and how, you know, just what was going on behind the scenes at the business. So um, I really appreciated that he did that. But that recognition of yeah. we're providing something he uses every week. I mean, he comes to our weekly X-Wing tournaments and our league nights and all the stuff we're putting on and we have the spaces and we have the boards and the materials that you need. Um, right. but we're basically asking him, uh, to, you know, I guess leave a tip for a hundred dollar difference or whatever it is. Um, right. and that's just a real, uh, reality. Right. And so one of the things 3.0 yeah. is mm -hmm. tr trying to address for us is how do you actually create a model where, uh, you know, it's economical to provide the things you want to provide and not mm -hmm. just hope that people buy things from you because they enjoy the actual thing that you're doing that provides value. So still working gotcha. on that. Haven't had it solved yeah. yet, uh, but that that's that's definitely a, a goal of ours. Yeah, I, that's a tough one because I think it's, you know, it's pretty tough. Like the average person doesn't appreciate the operating costs to do anything, even like, you know, to host a, tr a, a website, a YouTube channel, this, all the tech that goes into it, a store, like, you know, retail space, that's expensive. You're mm -hmm. building one from scratch. You probably got, I don't know if you'll own outright or have to, well, you'll, I guess you're building it so you'll own it, but you know, you probably have mortgage to pay off, right? So it's not trivial, yeah. <laughs> but your average person, especially like in the demographic for TCG, sometimes they're young and they just want to play games and buy stuff as cheaply as possible and don't, uh, you know, realize what goes into that and what it takes for you to offer that to them. So yeah, well, yeah I can empathize. You know, it's tough to even, you, we were talking before we were live and you have yeah. a family, right? And mm -hmm. like, it, there was a long time when we didn't really, so from 2012 until about 2017, we didn't have any collectible games um, that we were selling or had in store. Um, gotcha. And so a lot of the games we were supporting back then were LCGs, which have a $15 a month pack that comes out. Hmm. 
And so the difference between buying that pack from us and online might be two or three dollars, um, which yep. it hits a little different. Right. But and you also if you're buying yeah. this you know pack for twelve dollars online, you still have to pay for shipping. You have to go order yep. it, all that kind of stuff. Um, but once we started dabbling in TCGs again, the problem got even more obvious. Right. Because mm -hmm. if you're going to buy a case of sorcery and if online is selling it for 20, 30 percent off of whatever the MSRP is, um, you know, every time someone's buying a case, it's it's that's a good hundred and twenty, hundred and fifty, hundred and eighty dollars. And even if you're if you're a kid, if you're a teenager, if you're in your 20s, if you have a family, if you're anybody that values having an extra hundred and twenty to one hundred and fifty dollars, yep. um, that's a pretty big ask. Um, so it's it's right. it's really tough, I think, to be a tabletop gaming retailer uh, mm -hmm. and have any amount of success and having a physical space is also there's so much that comes with that and having staff and all that kind of business. So it's tough. Right. Yep. Absolutely. Okay. So let's get into sorcery. I appreciate that background. Like this, I, there's purpose to the questions I asked. I'm just trying to understand, um, sure. cause I know you guys played a lot of games and I think I've heard you say in the discords that like Matt, you're not a big magic, um, store or seller. So you're, and you mentioned earlier, you're like, you're into the indie games, right. And, the, and that's where kind of, uh, Sorcery is trying to find its niche coming up or where does it fit in the marketplace? So and another thing I've heard you say is like you test a lot of games. You know, there's some channels, some people that just kind of like market any product that any creator will just give them. Like these YouTube channels are trying to get views, you know, so they're showing off product from whatever and they kind of evolve on what hits. But you guys are a little you guys discriminate a little more right based on what you think are quality games. I believe is that I don't want to put words in your mouth, but is that right? Yeah. Like so you mentioned you you weed out a bunch and you only promote <laughs> the ones you care about or think have potential. Is that right? <laughs> yeah. I mean, I, I think there's two two really key components to it. One is the quality of the game itself, um, and the other one is the quality of the publisher and the people doing it, what their vision is, and why why they exist. Right. That's a big step for us. And I think yeah. one of the pieces of that uh, that's worth mentioning is that we. We don't really view ourselves as, uh, you know, traditional content creators. Um, and so what I what I mean by that is, we're never asking the question, what content can we do that will get the most views? Um, we have ads disabled on our YouTube channel, so mm -hmm. we're not we're not trying to get to a subscriber count. We're not trying to hit this many views, you know, that that kind of stuff. Um, and so for a lot of content creators, and I'll use a parallel example that's not in this exact space because it's easy to reference, but you look at a category like board games. And so, uh, you know, I think if I was a board game content creator and my goal was to be a content creator and make money off of creating content, yes, I, I would probably review and talk about any game any publisher is willing to send me um, because mm -hmm. I'm trying to take as many shots as I can for the algorithm to make one of my yeah. videos pop, right? And I, and I want sure. this yep. mass audience of anyone who's into anything. Um, mm -hmm. And for us, that's that's not... Uh, the goal at all, right? We we want to help build a community and support the games and the publishers that we think deserve to be supported. Um, yeah. And so, because yeah. we actually focus in on the, the that category, um, we go deeper with the game. We play it a lot on stream. We have Discord on it. We're active mm -hmm. in the you know discussions about these games, and locally, we're playing in these events and we're hosting these things. Um, so. If we're going to do all that, we don't want to be doing that with a publisher that we don't want to work with, that we don't believe in where they're going, or a game that we don't enjoy. Um, so yes, it okay. does filter out uh, a lot. I saw someone post the other day that there's at least 13 or 14 collectible games coming out this year. Um, well, yeah. And at 
as it stands uh-huh. right now, we're we've only uh, you know decided to work with one of those, um, and it would be really easy. Okay. I mean, we could throw a subscription up for every one of those games. We could post at least a you know some amount of content for each of those games and whatnot. But like, yeah, that's just not really why we're here. Um, so gotcha. sorcery is one of those games that we picked, and for a lot of good reasons. Okay, yeah, I want to get into those reasons. It's interesting too because. I'm kind of like an anomaly too. I'm a bit of an extremist and only care about one thing at a time and I go really hardcore on it. So my channel is only about sorcery. So I live and die with that. If it fails, it's game over for me. But I don't have a store, I don't have a store to worry about or <laughs> yeah. things like that. So I get you. But yeah, so on that point, like let's get into like what about so you know, I'm into the artwork and like collecting and stuff. Like you mentioned, I have a family, I have three little kids. I, I don't have a lot of time to be like playing games. Like so casually play like I used to play Hearthstone until it just got too trolly and I just couldn't deal with it. But, um, you know, so I'm like more casually into the game side and I look forward to playing sorcery, but I'm more into like the art, the artists, the collectability. And um, I played like 90s magic as a kid. So there's a lot of nostalgia, I think, that hits with sorcery. And um, like you, like I usually look at the creator to see if this game is viable. Do I believe in that creator? So initially I was into flesh and blood for a bit because I was impressed with James White and his background. And like similarly with Eric, he's been very successful in the gaming industry and just as like artistic, um, he's a brilliant art director and it shows in the product and it feels quality and it's exciting, you know? So that's what got me into it. But I'm curious from your perspective, 13 games coming out, you pick sorcery as the one you're into. What are some of the reasons why um, it resonated with you? Yeah. So this, I guess I, the best way to answer that is to talk about my journey from not knowing about sorcery to being where we're at today a little bit. Okay, cool. Um, so I first saw sorcery on Twitter, um, and there was a mm-hmm. there was a post from Eric, I believe, and it was a picture of a booster box, like, and this is before the Kickstarter, right? I just okay. saw this picture of this box and. It, I, funnily enough, so during during the, when the pandemic hit, we had to close our local store and uh, everyone had to work from home. And so when we were working through what is that going to look like for us? What are we going to do? We pivoted almost immediately into streaming five days a week for three or four hours a day. Uh, and the idea was uh, a lot of people can work from home. Steven and I can have a really tight bubble and hang out and play these games. And everyone stuck at home who's not getting to take part in the community and play these games can at least pseudo experience community here on live stream, right? A lot of people respond to that. But one right. of the things we started doing really early on was Throwback Thursday. And mm-hmm. so before the pandemic, I had been building collections of a couple games because I had planned on hosting locally with some friends, uh, some like draft uh, events for Star Wars CCG, Star Wars TCG, and the Lord of the Rings CCG. So over right. like 2017, 18, 19, I've been buying boxes of these old games, right? Mm-hmm. Yep. Um, and I planned on hosting these draft events. And then the at the end of all of it, I wanted to build draft cubes for each of these games so that we could yeah. like just continually draft these forever, these old games that I yeah. love. Okay. Um, and so between that and then just collections of games we played throughout time, right? Um, we've been doing this for 16 years and yeah. played a ton of different games. I have you know my favorite decks and my collections for a lot of those games and stuff. So we started doing Throwback Thursday. Every Thursday, we play mm. old games. And then after like a couple months, um, I went on this like treasure hunt, right? It's the middle of pandemic, right? It's crazy time. Um, okay. And I went online and I was just like, all right, there's tons of games. We we a lot of, we, we went to Gen Con every year for a long time. Okay. And you, when you get in conversations with different publishers or artists or people that are in, into these games that you're into, 
they always mm -hmm. have weird games they mention, right? It's like, oh, have you ever played that 7C TCG? Yeah. Oh, have you ever <laughs> played the Nightmare Before Christmas TCG? So I had yep. this long list of <laughs> games that I wanted to check out. And so I just went online and started mm -hmm. looking at, like, can I buy starters? Can I buy booster boxes? Can I buy... And I just loaded up so that we'd have uh, something to stream new on Thursdays for a long time. So the okay. reason I tell that long story is I saw a sorcery on Twitter and my natural response and instinct was, how have I not heard about this old dead game? Oh, wow. Okay. <laughs> and so I was like, what's sorcery TCG? How have I, this yeah. looks great. How have I never seen this? Right. Right. So then I Google it and I can't find anything. And then I go back to Twitter and I'm like looking it up. And then I realize this is not an old dead game. So right. that moment alone, we, we, we played, I don't know, 60, 70 old dead card games, maybe, maybe more. I mean, we did that for two and a half years. So probably a hundred wow. different old games. Okay. Um, so, you know, I'm, I'm a bit of a collector of old dead games at this point uh, from okay. my situation and just doing it. And mm -hmm. then, from a, a, the immediate first impression was just like, this is capturing that exact essence. And, okay. you know, from there it goes, it, I reach out and I'm like, Hey, would love to check out this game. Um, and yeah. then they were very receptive uh, to us and a couple people working on the project were familiar with us and our content. They were really excited that we were reaching out. Mm -hmm. One thing led to another, they sent us an early copy of the game. We really dug it. We talked with them. We have conversations and, my first conversation with Eric was remarkable because, you know, I've, I've we played a lot of different games. We've talked to a lot of different publishers and his approach was in the best way, uh, the complete opposite of what you would expect from a pandemic era TCG, right? Like okay. fab got hot. Pokemon got hot and all the collectible old games started getting hot late 2020, 2021. Right. Back then, I predicted there's going to be a whole wave, and here we are, 13, 14 TCGs coming out this year. Yeah. Um, a whole wave of people who mm -hmm. would see that and think, now's my time, right? Stuck mm -hmm. at home, I can make a TCG, we can make this this work. There's this game, got a million dollars in Kickstarter, and this one did a million dollars, and whatever. <laughs> um, but right. when I talked with Eric, uh, it was very clear that his entire approach was completely different, right? He was making mm -hmm. the exact product he wanted to make. He knew exactly what he wanted it to be, and he was going to do it basically no matter what, right? Like he yep. was committed to doing this project. And I say this a lot on stream, but like when you realize that there were three, four hundred plus pieces of art that are hand painted, yeah, that were, that were done before the Kickstarter even went live, incredible, and the yep. hundreds of thousands of dollars that it would take to do that, right? That is that is the opposite of almost any publisher I've ever interacted with, right? It's like, yeah. Yep. That is that is a crazy level of commitment and confidence and willingness to take a risk on something because you just want to see it exist. So yep, all that to say, um, beyond just his general mentality, which I really uh, respected and appreciated, mm -hmm. was a vision for a game that wasn't all about tournaments and wasn't all about how many products can we release in a year to get how much money from everyone that plays this game and hard to keep up and stuff. Um, mm -hmm. and so partially, I mean, there's a ton of upsides of sorcery, but a huge part of it is just an understanding too, that there are a lot of people in my own life that played card games, that collected things, played in tournaments that don't have the bandwidth for that anymore. Um, and they aren't really getting to take part in the community because they can't keep up with these games. Yeah. Um, and so a, the idea of a 
a, a card game that's striking the 90s chord step one is good right that 90s nostalgia right. feel oh yeah two uh <laughs> all hand-painted arts one of my favorite yeah. throwbacks we found mm -hmm. was the middle earth ccg it has a ton okay. of hand-painted art in that it's it gives me that same like feeling of that kind of art yeah, I want to say Liz Danforth did a lot of artwork she for did. that. And she's, yeah, she did yeah, some of my favorite pieces right. for that. Yeah. Yep. Um, cool. And then, you know, the third piece is once you get past uh, the art, you also have a game mm -hmm. that is not focused on tournaments that doesn't have yeah. an aggressive as aggressive a release schedule. I just think there's mm -hmm. a huge um, need. And when I say need, it's not like even an economic need. I, I think it's it's a huge need for people who want to take part in the community for a game like okay. this to exist. Yep. Um, and my hope is that sorcery can offer a bridge for people who've kind of been pushed out because they can't keep up with their, because of life uh, and their family and their commitments and whatever, uh, back into the hobby, uh, in mm -hmm. a way that's actually mm -hmm. sustainable for them. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. It's interesting. Like you touched on like how it, how it came up, what Eric was all about. So I know early on when he started, he started discord in like August of 2021, I want to say roughly thereabouts. It's probably, and you mentioned, I don't know, maybe that's when you saw it on Twitter, but early on, like he was still working at Grinding Gear Games, you know, on Path of Exile. And he was, he said he had been working on sorcery for like two hours a night, like every night, just passion project, he called it, um, that he would just chip away at. And that, that included like the commissioning the hell out of some artists, right? So there's like crazy, what, 25 plus artists now, I think we know of um, for Alpha. And, um, yeah, like you say, it's 403 cards in the set. You know, you figure about $1,000 commission on average is 400 grand out of his own pocket. And obviously he's well off, you know, <laughs> grinding gear games and Path of Exile is a massive success. So from that regard, I was like, when I first heard about it, I was like, it's awesome. This is a very successful guy. Um, but one of the questions, he did a Q&A very early on. And I was like, well, when you built Path of Exile, you were hungry and you needed this to work for this game to succeed, right? Now you're like later in life, you're middle-aged, you're calling this a passion project. Like, how serious are you about this? Like, if it failed, it's no sweat off your back. But, um, you know, he, he had the right answers. Like, he's definitely committed and he's into it. And he he actually left Grinding Gear Games and, and decided to pursue it full time. And this was like many months before the Kickstarter. So before he made a yeah. single dollar on it, um, you know, let alone the four to five million he made on Kickstarter. Um, and not that that's pure profit, but it, rec it recuperated a lot of his costs and it puts it on good footing for a good debut. Um, but yeah, that's interesting. I guess like what I'm, so you've played like a ton of games. You're, uh, you're almost like a dead, dead TCG pro <laughs> from like, <laughs> up, like why some, so I would say like, since you've played them all, you would be an expert on like why these games are good and bad and probably know like why they might have succeeded or failed on gameplay merits. Did you also go and research? And the reason why I'm asking this is like from sorcery, how does the sorcery compare? So we'll get to that. But do you also research like if they failed based on gameplay merit or if it was more like business execution side or financial issue or some other, you know, there's a million yeah. reasons, right? But <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, I think we've, we've been doing this for 16 years as a business, right? And then yeah. we were playing games for 10 years before that loosely. Okay. Um, which is the majority wow. of time that this, this industry, uh, existed, right? So magic came out, I think 93, right. changed the world, um, for mm -hmm. tabletop games. And then Pokemon came out, like, I want to say 97, 98 as a card game. Right. Um, yeah, 99 in the U S maybe or yeah. 98. Yep. Um, and so I started playing at 98, I think nine, whenever Pokemon came out is when I started. Um, okay. and we played a lot of games that failed. 
<laughs> yep. And uh, there's different reasons they fail, right? Yeah. Uh, but ultimately, a game fails and dies when uh, not enough people are buying the game. And yep. a lot of times what that means is the ratio to people getting into the game is less than the ratio of people leaving the game. Okay. And then once that process starts, and there's a lot of reasons it starts, which we can talk about some of those in a second. But once that process starts, uh, it's almost like a self-fulfilling prophecy, right? Like if you show up every week to a sorcery gathering and there's 10, 20 people there, mm -hmm. you miss a week, no big deal. You show up the next week, there's probably still 10 to 20 people there. Um, yep. But once five to six people are showing up and two people miss on the same week and then three people miss, Mm -hmm. And then, you know, there's a delay in the next release. So people aren't as excited anymore and all, all kinds of yeah. things happen. And sometimes, you know, some games, just the life, the design itself only really has a lifespan of a couple of years. Like you get to a certain point with it and it's like, okay, that was fun, but I'm kind of not into it anymore. Right. Okay. Like yep. I'm just, I've, I've done it. I've explored it, but uh, all that to say, it's usually a mix of things. I think it's, it's bad development. It's designs that are, good at first and then to keep putting out new releases uh you yeah. sort of have to make it into a different sort of game or you have to break some things and make old cards not good and fundamentally it just shifts um yeah. you also yeah. have tons of business issues right i mean i think you underprint a product you overprint a product you have delays in releases you have bad communication you have a sometimes a single set it kills it right it's like yep People spend a lot of money and then all of a sudden it's just really degenerate and it's not fun. And right. if you let that happen for too long or whatever. So yep. um, there, there are a ton of uh, reasons. And I, I would say to answer kind of your first question, playing mm -hmm. a ton of old games. One of the things that is so impressive about sorcery is it somehow captures the feel of a 90s card game without having a lot of the weight and clunkiness of the 90s card games. So one of the, the beautiful mm. things about the 90s is the internet is not what it is today. And it was the what I call the original CCG gold rush, right? Magic comes out, it's popular. And yep. then everybody's trying to get in on that. Uh, mm -hmm. You have a Tomb Raider video game CCG. You have a Nightmare Before Christmas TCG. Yeah, yeah. you know, you, you name it, you got it. You got a Buffy the Vampire Slayer TCG. I mean, it right. just doesn't stop. Yep. Um, and so the a lot of those 90s games have really unique and captivating elements to them um I, you know there's a ton of there's a whole branch of games that came because of magic right and it's like this is just a spin-off of magic we changed these two things or we did this or we're doing this different or we put this theme on it or whatever right uh, but it's basically creatures or dudes attacking other creatures or dudes and trying to do damage to the other player and get the other person to zero like Okay. Yep. That's a ton. That's a whole category. And so there's tons of those games. Yeah. Um, but the one of the most, I mean, there's a lot impressive about Sorcerer. One of the most impressive things is uh, it feels like a 90s card game, but it has a lot of the modern sensibilities of, of today's card games. So, you know, on one hand, mm -hmm. you have uh, grappling effects and you have these crazy car, a rolling boulder, right? And like you have, yeah, just these sort of wacky, powerful, weird, even like in the I, I tweeted about this recently, but in the rule book, right, it's got the silver rule, which is like, hey, you know, read the cards and try to figure out what it does. But yeah. if you can't figure it out, just be cool. You know, yeah, <laughs> just do what you think it should do. Right. Um, so there's a vibe. To it, right? And, yeah. And, right. And that that was definitely more the vibe in the 90s. So they would design yeah. stuff. that was crazy. Like mm -hmm. what? 
looking back today, like you look at old games, you're like, I would never do it this way. Like that, that's insane to ask people to do. Um, yeah, but it captures that without, without feeling too clunky. So the, one of the issues with a lot of the nineties card games Mm -hmm. is just like, if you've ever played the star Wars CCG, it I'm, I'm always proud when I feel like I just played a clean game. Like not even did I win or lose or did I do well? It's just, did I execute the rules of this game? well right um and so like that's cool because it's old and it's star wars and it, it does have some it, it's worth the that game in particular is worth the uh squeeze <laughs> the juice is worth the squeeze okay um but a lot of them it's like it's just not the case right like it's too much um yeah and so sorcery somehow feels like those early games okay without feeling like a drag right like it's still relatively straightforward and simple and like there are nuanced situations that come up but not not mm-hmm. like I have a headache when I'm trying to work through it kind of stuff. Um, okay. And it does a really good job, too, of uh, there are really important decisions to make, and there's really nuanced moments. But for the most part, executing the game is really easy. Like, it's it's not mm-hmm. nuanced. You don't have to know subsection eight of part B rules right. to know how this this card works, right? It's like, okay, like, yeah. it just does this thing. So, yep. You learn the fundamental mechanics and you're good to go. Yeah, it's interesting because like, um, you know, early, very early on when he was doing it as a passion project, he has talked about how it was kind of like you described of the early 90s spinoff games that were like a slight twist on magic. So at its core is very similar with its mana resourcing. It wasn't a grid centric game at all. And then along came, you know, Nick Reynolds, the co-creator who sold Eric on the concept of a grid based game. And, uh, you know, that's extremely transformative now it's a night and day night and day difference completely different um game approach entirely um and it and it offers a lot of like creative diversity and flavor i feel like so like i say like i i didn't i was telling you this before we filmed i guess i guess i should tell everybody um i refuse to play tabletop simulator i have like no interest in doing that i don't want it to be my first sorcery Respect. experience so i'm like <laughs> all in on like the art side the collectability but i'm not playing like I've watched other people play because people are always playing in the discord and I've watched like all the videos, learn to play and just people playing, they film it, you know, but I've, I've not personally played it on tabletop simulator and I'm just waiting for the real cards to come out until I could get a couple pre-con decks and then, you know, booster boxes and whatnot. And then I'll give it a shot. But, um, yeah, so, but like, I, I've played like enough of games and enough of magic and other games to like be able to look at the card, read the gameplay mechanic, and kind of understand how the game works through that and then through watching others play. And it just seems like the realm, like you're talking about, um, the extensibility of keeping it fresh, keeping it creative, like just the, the, um, realm of possibilities, uh, it just seems like really powerful in this. And Eric's kind of teased at things like when you think about Arthurian legends and you know like a knight's going on a quest and i don't think i'm, I'm not giving anything away because he gives like obscure one-liners you know that <laughs> make I you speculate <laughs> and read into it but he's like oh that sounds like something a knight might want to do you know so like yeah. you can think about that and something like i've dabbled with in my mind is like if you have you know with play mats if you think of a game like um command and conquer or like these war style games where you have to like work around terrain like, I wonder mm-hmm. if it could take that path eventually where you have like a river you got to navigate around and like you could do ranged effects over the ri- uh, river or airborne. But like for foot soldiers, for example, wouldn't be able to navigate across it without going over a bridge or something like that. You know, like it just seems like so many possibilities when you go grid centric that it seems really cool. And I was telling you earlier that like I was always more traditional um, 
games like Magic or Hearthstone, things like that, and not grid centric. And like grid centric was a turnoff to me, honestly, at first. So I'm curious, like in your experience playing all these games, what is like, do you think um, for one that the people that are used to like a Magic or Flesh and Blood, would they make that leap to a grid centric game? Or do you think this is more for like board game style people or some other like demographic? Well, I think I think the game at least has the curb appeal to get people who were into anything in the 90s in this vein um, and even yeah. magic players. Right. Um, but for me, the grid based games that I think of uh, are the two top of mind are anachronism. It was this old history-based game by the History Channel, actually, weirdly enough. Oh, wow. Um, which is, <clears throat> it? it's a very good game. It, it actually has the, we play a lot of these throwbacks, and some of them definitely have the DNA to be great games. And if they were done by a modern publisher and they were just tweaked a little bit, they would be like, potentially, you know, some of the best games of all time. And that's one of them. Anachronism mm-hmm. is like, okay, th- there's just something missing. It's like a little... It's yeah. good, but it's just a little <laughs> simple. You know, it's like just a little, just need a little, one more lever and then it might get there. Yeah, gotcha. uh, the other one is a game called Summoner Wars, uh, which is by mm-hmm. Plaid Hat Games. And so we actually, uh, after the spoils, then the other game that we were into that was really big for us was uh, Monster Apocalypse before we opened the store. Hmm. And it's a grid based, pre assembled, or it was grid, grid based, pre assembled, pre painted miniatures game with like kaiju, so like giant monsters. Okay. Um, and so to me, grid like between Summoner Wars and that, uh, I have really early just positive grid-based memories. Um, okay. So I, I do think I have heard people say it's kind of a turnoff for them, but yeah, I think what that, as you mentioned, I think what that addition does to sorcery to make it, um, you know, it has some similarities to a lot of card games that you maybe played, um, but that, that layer mm-hmm. on top um, is like multiplication, not addition. And so what that allows for mechanically and design wise and stuff you were talking about, what that makes capable, because there's a positional element to all of this. Yep. Yeah. It's it's kind of like going from 2D to 3D, right? Like, right. It, it, yep. it really is. And so mm-hmm. it just kind of depends on what you're after. So I, I, I would mm-hmm. hope it's not a hindrance for that many people. Um, and, you know, okay. I, the art is strong enough that I think the vibe of the community will be strong enough that hopefully the people looking for what sorcery is offering uh are even just in eye shot of this game <laughs> yeah. and they see it and then right. once mm-hmm. you see it and you see the art and in person these cards just it's different you know you you, you see yeah. those test print cards even and yep. the fidelity yep. on the uh final print is even better like the color quality and what's oh, going yeah. on so yeah. um so yeah i mean i i don't know i i in my experience people that are already in the hobby and that are looking for a new way to engage with it. Don't let a lot get in the way. So uh, if they see the game, if it looks like something they would want, if they see the Arthurian legends theme and they like that or whatever comes after that. Yeah. um, I I don't, I don't expect that to be a major hindrance. Um, You know, it could give people pause, but Mm -hmm. uh, yeah, I don't know. have, Have you heard from a lot of people that it, I guess you wouldn't. That's the thing. You wouldn't hear from them because if it if it was enough of a hindrance, you probably would. They would never be in the Discord or on your channel or whatever. Yeah, no. Um, so I think a lot of the guys playing the games, you know, I'm pretty uh, obviously like heavily involved with the Facebook community and then also with the Discord. And I have my own Discord and stuff. So there's a lot of people that are both collectors, art fans, and 
um, players. And the players come from all different scenes. You know, they are magic people. A lot of flesh and blood types are crossing over. Not not that they're giving up flesh and blood, but, you know, you got one guy, uh, Mean Mugging, Mike from Mean Mugging and Games. He has a YouTube channel. Uh, he's a competitive. You might know him from the competitive fab scene. I'm not sure. He, he plays competitively. And now he's saying, like, sorcery is his number one game. And he still plays fab competitively, but he's super into sorcery. So, um, you know, like, the, the community is so small. Like you say, this is, like, the pre-release era. It's really tiny. Um, mm-hmm. it's, it's harder. <laughs> Those that have been around since August, 2021, it seems like it's been out for a lifetime, but it's not even out yet. So a lot of people have never even heard of it. So it's definitely a small sample size. So I kind of depend on more experienced people like yourself and other people that are into like actually still play magic and fab. Like, what do you think? Like, I always ask that question, like, does it resonate yeah. with you? Why or why not? Well, and, I think, um, yeah, I, so I'm just I think one of the notable parts of sorcery is for someone like that plays fab right now to get them to play a different tcg um is very hard uh and and it's because there's only so much money and there's only so much time in the day and there's only so many resources you have and how much energy you have and so you know you might be able to get them to try it um but at the end of the day especially there's like a huge sunk cost right like if you're in fab and you've been in it for two years and you have a collection and you have a skill set that makes you good at this game and your friends play this game. Um, mm-hmm. It's really hard to get that player to pivot over into a different game unless they're just truly done. Right. Unless they're sure. like, hey, I'm, yeah. I'm getting out of fab and we're moving on. Mm-hmm. Um, and honestly, it's it's as similarly difficult to get retailers to care um, because if sure. they've got active magic and Pokemon scenes, uh, the question of why would they actively try to develop a new community? Uh, particularly if the what they're going to be doing is taking players from their current communities that are Magic and Pokemon and moving them over to Sorcery um, yeah. or whatever the new game is. Like, that's a huge, huge ask. Um, so Yeah, it erodes their own profit margin on another game that's doing well. That's a, that's a good point. Yeah, yeah. And, and you split your community, right? Like, you just right. have yeah. now three smaller communities and you have to, you know, with Magic and Pokemon right now, most stores don't have to do anything. It's autopilot. Mm-hmm. There's a system. We have these tournaments. We do these things. We rinse, repeat every sure. t- 22 days when they put out a new set because uh, they just release stuff like crazy. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. But the going back to it is like the from a player perspective, one of the appeals to me for sorcery is even personal in that I I have the bandwidth to add sorcery to my life. Um, I don't really have the bandwidth to add something else on the fab level to my life. Like it, it would right. be a choice. And if okay. you're going to make me choose between fab and something else, yeah, you're gonna have to bring the goods. On like a, <laughs> you know what I mean? Like Fab yeah, is one of right. the best games I've ever played by a publisher sure. that really cares, um, mm-hmm. and that has a lot of uh, that. Their vision of the future is very much what I want to see in the future. So, um, okay. so sorcery attacking that a different angle, right? The once a year release for major releases, the more casual approach, not tournament based. The feeling that mm-hmm. I could just buy a box of this and play, and like occasionally yeah. play, and not have to it be all in all the time. Mm-hmm. Um, but at the same time, on the other end of that spectrum, you have board gamers, you have people who haven't been playing card games in a while. It's like getting mm-hmm. them to ramp up into a fab is very hard uh, because, okay. it, you know, fab is a lifestyle choice. <laughs> yeah. mm-hmm. uh, you could you can play it locally and you can play casually and you can play like local sealed and draft events. But, I, you know, fab is more of a lifestyle choice for sure. Um, okay. And so sorcery to me has this nice it's hitting this nice pocket where fab players can potentially pick it up as a second game or like a either taking a break from fab 
Same is true of Magic or Pokemon. Anyone that used to play card games, this is going to hit a lot of nostalgia buttons. Um, but it's yep. also like a super a game that should be super easy to keep up with from a time and budgetary standpoint. And even mm -hmm. the way the design and the way the uniques work in the game and, and the the lack of drawing cards in this game, honestly, uh, yep. creates a scenario where, you know, I, I feel like a person that just plays sometimes can actually beat a person that plays, you know, I think you can get really good at this game. And, the, and people that are really good are going to win most of their games. Right. Um, mm -hmm. But just the reality of, I think, what it would take to keep up with this game is a lot lower. And one of the concepts we talk about a lot is the game outside the game. And so basically the ability to participate in the community or the activity outside of when you're actually at the table. And that's part of why we love expandable games in general is you mm -hmm. have deck built in, you have discussion online about new cards and previews and how does this work and all mm -hmm. that kind of stuff. Um, and one of the things about sorcery to me is like, it's art. It, it's truly yeah. art. So mm -hmm. even as a player, if I don't get to play it all the time, there's an appeal to just owning the art and sometimes getting that art on the table um, that yeah. I think a lot of games don't have nearly as much of for a lot of reasons, right? I mean, you look at this art, it's crazy. Yeah. So all that to say, like, to, <laughs> to me, and I've seen this in, in the Sorcerer Discord uh, some, which is people effectively wanting sorcery to do a lot of the things that they see magic and Pokemon and Yu-Gi-Oh! and Fab doing, um, which I get yeah. why they say that, but honestly, mm -hmm. I just think it's the totally wrong approach. Like sorcery to me has strengths that are very different than all the other games on the market, all the TCGs coming out of the market. Like this year is going to be a bloodbath. All those TCGs yeah. coming out, all trying to do the exact same thing, organized play and tournaments and prizes. And mm -hmm. you know, you see MetaZoo announcing a $2 million prize tour and like just all this stuff, right? Yeah. Um, yep. And there's a space to live that only sorcery is even thinking about right now. Uh, right. And so I think them doubling down on on being in that space and being fully exactly what this game is and who it's for uh, is exactly what they should be doing. So I, I think there will be a lot of people yeah. who are involved or interested or in the community who get frustrated because sorcery is behaving so differently. But honestly, if, mm -hmm. if you've been had your eyes open at all, I would never expect Eric or sorcery to behave like those other games. Um, it, right. it is a totally different offering with a totally different set of strengths and weaknesses. Uh, and that's part yeah. of what drew me to the game in the first place, right? It's like, like I said earlier, there's a need, I think, for a game that is functionally this kind of game um, that mm -hmm. will allow a lot of people to participate in the hobby that wouldn't have a game otherwise. Yep. Yeah, no, it's a very insightful answer. And something you're hitting on there is that like a lot of these other games that are coming up, 13 games this year, most of them are trying to compete head to head with the big dogs, you know, with MTG or Pokemon or Fab, whereas Sorcery can be your second game. You could have both, right? And you have one year in between increments. That's kind of a double-edged sword to people. I think most people I hear complaining about that are like the investor speculator types, you know, because they're worried that yeah. people are going to get bored with it or like you're just going to lose interest. And then like these other games that are pumping out new sets or running big tournaments and whatnot are the, have the staying power. Um, but I think like you say, you know, it's a, first of all, it's a massive set, 403 cards. So the realm of gameplay possibilities I think are like endless in a grid centric game that has three dimensional depth, like you described. So I don't think the players are going to get bored. And now we have this like wild card of this mini set notion, right? That Ed Beard Jr. is doing, yep. he's doing 10 cards. And what is that? Is that a set within a big core set or is it like a stopgap? And maybe that shakes up the meta and 
three to six months or something, you know, like I think they'll probably find ways to keep it fresh when they need to. And then that'll sustain the player side. But then it's an interesting dichotomy, dichotomy from like a collector perspective and like the, like the approach they took, you know, you described some living card games that come out with like, you know, there's not rarity. It's just kind of like new products and it changes up. It's all about the gameplay, right. And keeping that fresh. But Eric liked, he's an old school vintage magic collector. He likes the pack opening experience and the collectability. And I think even in that regard, um, it's kind of a home run and it's unconventional again, because you're not getting frequent new product release. It's like that one set that comes out once a year, but there is like extreme rarity within the set, but on <clears throat> multiple levels between the rarity levels, the foils, which, you know, it sounds like there's going to be a few hundred of the unique level foils. So they will be super hard to get and likely expensive and take time for people to chase and collect. So that's sustainable. And then you also have the curious, which is what I wanted to talk to you about. Like, have you seen, now this curio idea, we don't know exactly what it is. We it's I think it's like a super fascinating um, concept on many levels because they say like what they are is going to be in some way a homage to the early development of the game. So it'll have some relevance to that. We have no idea what that means. It could have been like the card title was different or maybe it's a sketch card, some people think or whatever, right? But we don't know what it is. It's kind of cool that it's like on a, a debut release, it will have some relevance to their development. So the early adopters will be like really into that. Um, but the other aspect of it is they're not telling us what it is and they're not going to tell us. Like, I think Eric's still <laughs> deciding, will he ever put out a set list that tells us what those are? And, and like the only reason not um, to like the, the compelling reason to do that is because of like fraud risk, I guess. Like people could counterfeit something and say like, yeah, this is a sorcery card. It's a curio, <laughs> you know, but yeah. so like you got to have some checks and balances. And, and if they're very rare. You know, there might only be a few copies, like almost like serialized cards. And then you're like, well, yeah, I guess it could be a curio. Like, I don't know if it is or it isn't because the company's not telling me. But I think what's cool about that is like the discovery that has to happen through the pack opening experience. We can't go just online and find a set list and say, OK, this is what I'm looking for. You got to like open the packs and actually discover it. And he's saying it's like can be pretty subtle things. Like maybe it is just a word change or something fairly subtle um, that someone might like completely overlook and put in their bulk bulk bin and not realize that's a curio so have, have you seen anything like that in any other games or is that kind of like a novel concept where they're trying to recreate that 90s vibe where you didn't know what the cards were you couldn't go on the internet the internet didn't exist in the early 90s right most yeah. people didn't have it so you had to discover it in real time yeah I, well first off i absolutely adore that concept like yeah. i love that um it, if you're not i i've seen games that are collectible that don't really lean into the fact that it's collectible they're almost afraid of it um, and I remember in the nineties as a kid there, you know, just those comic book cards that my brothers would open and I would sometimes get to open the packs, right? Even Pokemon, when I first started playing, um, every, yeah. every time I opened a pack, I like everything was new to me, right? Like you don't have a set list. You, you bring your, you know, sneak your binders to school because you're showing your friends what you've got and you're making trades and like you're seeing stuff you've never seen all the time. And it's amazing. Yep. Like I, if I could yeah. live in a state where a set of a game could come out and I know nothing about it mm -hmm. and it actually is like just banned from the internet somehow, I would choose that every time. That was, <laughs> that was so fun and exciting. So yeah, uh, as far as the curios, um, flesh and blood is the one that's gotten the closest to this. So they have, uh, one rarity is called fabled. Um, yep. And they don't actually disclose how rare it is, but they usually disclose what mm -hmm. the card is. Like they'll show it on the collector center and like, you know, that it's fabled and stuff. 
And then in the last set, they actually had a another rarity they've introduced is called Marvel. And so the yep. Marvels are usually just like alt art or alt treatments for cards that are mm -hmm. also available in the set. The Fable just comes as Fable. So that's just a really hard card to get that you can actually play. And that's the only way to get it. But the Marvels are alt versions. And so there's this uh, mm -hmm. Marvel version of a character called the Emperor from this last set. Um, mm -hmm. And they said it's they actually uh, announced that it was it comes one in every 10,000 booster packs. Um, oh. <clears throat> so the estimates are that there's like two or three hundred total in existence, maybe. Mm -hmm. um, and that assumes that they all got opened. Right. Because some yep. people buy cases and put them on the shelf or buy a hundred boxes and store them in a somewhere and whatever. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so, you know, with curios, it's, it's fascinating because what's going to happen is all the alpha kick chargers are going to get shipped. And, you know, I've heard from a lot of different people. Some people are going to open it. Some are going to not. Uh, some bought extra so they could keep some of it sealed. Yep, um, and I, I love the idea of like the golden ticket. Um, okay. So I, I mm -hmm. don't know why. Really, I don't know why more companies don't do this. But the idea that there yep. might be a card there's only one of or a card yep. there's there's five of. Right. And you don't know. Yeah. You just don't know how many there are. Like you open this right. thing. No one's ever seen it. You post on like you can imagine when we get alpha, you open oh, a yeah. box and you're like, what's this? You post on discord and everyone else is just like, I've never seen that. What is yeah. this? How Maybe many not. are there? Um, yeah. <laughs> yep. I mean, I, for people that like to collect, like, yeah, it, you know, and a lot of times one of the, the downsides to something like the fable rarity and fab is if it's a playable piece and it's very hard to get and you have tournaments and it's a, a there's one card recently that is a fable that, uh, the guy that won the world championship, Michael Hamilton had in his list. And so like it used to be, you could get kind of a second edition version of it for a couple hundred bucks. Um, but now I think the, the bottom of the market is six or $700. And like, this is a card people actually put into their deck, you know, and use. Um, so with sorcery though, again, one of the strengths is this is not a tournament game, right? It's not being marketed as that necessarily. And you, because of the wildness of the effects that you're willing to let into this game as well, it's like, yeah, there might be someone out there with a one-off dragon that's really just insane and like does this crazy thing and has this crazy art and has this unique foiling. And I absolutely love it. Like if I sit down across the table from you and you drop this dragon that I've never seen, it's like, this is why we're here, man. Like I would just smile so big. I don't even care if I win. Like you remember that time that Mike played that dragon on me? Oh my God. I can't believe he opened that out of his pack. Right. Mike, I lost your audio. Oh, I'm taking over the channel, everybody. Still can't hear you. Listic in chat saying maybe the way they do it is if someone thinks they found one, they can share it with the designers and they can get that, that confirmed. I think that would be cool if you, if you want to verify that it's real. Or maybe they don't like officially add it to the online uh, gallery unless, oh, it's just me. I've officially taken over. Uh, maybe they don't add it to the online gallery until they've seen someone post about it. So if you did have some wild dragon and you post the picture, then it like shows up in the gallery officially. Um, that that can be pretty cool. I just like the mystery of it, like and and potentially not not actually fully knowing um, what's going on, and still being able to be surprised. Like and part of the golden ticket mentality too is, if you get a year from now and someone has a sealed box, the idea that you could open that and still find something that no one's ever found, 
Um, I think it encourages people to open and use the cards, uh, which I like, instead of just sitting on uh, would-be sealed boxes. Uh, since I have been abandoned, I think I'm still alive. Uh, anyone in chat have questions or thoughts on any of this? I'm going to read through some of these while I uh, am waiting. Raul making a good point here, saying uh, thinks that this game will appeal to board gamers, or it can appeal to board gamers, miniature players, and card gamers. I think that is very true. The way it's being done and the uh, rule set, even the grid, I think, is going to appeal to uh, some, some players that wouldn't otherwise normally get into a game like this. All right, let me check my email and see if Mike is uh, freaking out yet. Facebook user, I can't see your name, but saying that I'm awesome and that you are so hyped. Yeah, we're really excited. Um, I I just can't wait to finally get my Kickstarter boxes in. That's going to be just a super exciting weekend. I see Mike. Can I hear Mike? Yeah. Hang on. I got you. Um, I can hear you. All right. We made it back. I uh, I said nothing but nice things about you while you were gone. <laughs> yeah, I heard you. I could hear you the whole time, but um, I'm getting some bad echo. I'm not sure what's going on. Let me check my settings. And I don't see you. Do you guys see Zach? I can see me. Hmm. That's weird. The beauty of live, man. Live streams are held together by duct tape. It's a miracle. Yeah. Oh, I think you're coming back in. All right, I'm getting some echo. So hopefully it's just annoying for me. You're not getting any echo? I am not getting any echo. Okay. Yeah, so what I was trying to say with the Marvel rarity, you said like a few hundred, right? So the unique um, rarities, the unique foils in Alpha are also estimated to be on the order of like 300 to 400, I think, in that range. So they will be super rare. Actually, I was kind of like, as a collector, I was pretty demoralized when Eric uh, announced that. Originally, <laughs> he was like, I'm not doing foils. I'm old school. It didn't exist like in 1993. Forget about it. But then he was, you know, like you said, he wanted to feel the modern sensibilities and people love foils. So it's like I'm doing a whole freaking set in foils. <laughs> 403 cards. And then those uniques are hard enough to pull as non-foils. So I was like, my dreams were crushed. This is a rich man's game. I'll never have a master set, right? Yeah. Um, so that chase will be there. It's kind of cool. And it's a double-edged sword, I guess, in some ways, because it'll be hard to get them all. But like you say, when those show up in gameplay, those are going to hit hard. That's going to feel special. It'll be pretty yeah. exciting. And then yeah, I mean, on like, top, if those are playable, amazing. Yeah. I'm just picturing, you know, you drop one of those foil gems, right? Or you drop a foil elementalist or whatever. Um, some really crazy cards. Or predestination or whatever it's called now. Uh, in in foil like, getting dropped. Yeah. I'm never gonna not call it predestination. Just so we're here. I'm <laughs> I love a that sorcery man. boomer. Um, but anyways, the I, I think another piece of this though, right, is if you're only planning to release one set a year, you actually give with the curios and the uniques being so rare and the foils being so rare, you give people uh, that want to collect some more mm. things to. It's going to be harder to collect, right? And so, uh, if you could just really easily get your collection. Uh, two weeks after the set came out, mm -hmm. like, okay, you're done. There's 50 weeks till the next set. We'll see you next year. Um, and so, you know, this, I was saying this when you were gone, but like the idea that it could be a year later and someone could open a box of alpha and we could see a card we've never seen before. Yeah. Very appealing. Like, yeah. I think that's very cool. Uh, and yeah. it'll drive collectors nuts because it's just oh, yeah. like, oh man, <laughs> I didn't even know this existed. I had a full set yeah. until then. What is happening? 
Yeah, maybe it'll um, make people eager to open boxes instead of let them sit on the shelf, which would be nice change, you know? <laughs> yeah. Instead of like just mountains of cases. But yeah, I'm pumped for that. And like, I think every box open experience will be like a must see on YouTube. I, I plan yeah. on opening <laughs> a box, uh, a bunch, and hoping I, you know, discover a curio or like one of those unique foils early on. That'd be super fun. Yeah, for sure. So, I think it's really a very smart thing to do. Yeah, and like it's also interesting with those foils, you have the full art on the backside, right? So as you become like a more seasoned player and you know what that card does, you could potentially play a full game in full arts, no text boxes. <laughs> Imagine yeah. that. That'd be wild. <laughs> Someone just has a total full art uh, collection. Yeah. Crazy. Yeah, if you have a full foil deck, you could play the, um, the full art side or just like, you know, play on the play side. So both sides know what's going on and then you flip it and play full art and just enjoy the beautiful visual experience of, of elite art, you know, <laughs> the dream. Yep. Yeah. So people have been quiet in chat. I don't know how much time you got. We've been going for over an hour, but if people want to chime in with any questions, Oh, actually let's talk about uh, beta. And actually yeah. I want to talk to you about print runs and then beta, like how that's positioned um, to enter the market because we had a massively successive Kickstarter, 30,000 boxes is probably largest than any other upstart game that I'm aware of. So you have like fairly large supply there. Kickstarters are speculative. Some percentage of that is, is always stonker flippers that just like are trying <laughs> to buy into alpha hype, flip it. And, and like, you know, maybe like well intentioned just to recover their investment and get to play this game for free. That's cool. But it's not going to be like 6,500 people that are all players and like not secondary market types. So you got that. And then you're going to have beta close behind that potentially within a few months is what we think. Um, so that's more supply on the market. And so do you think there's risk in that? That's one question, like print size. And then I want to talk to you about like pros and cons of ever disclosing the print size pre-release or post-release. I think they shouldn't do it. Spoiler alert, ever. Don't ever tell people. <laughs> Just yeah. let the economy decide, you know, it'll prove itself out. So let's talk about what do you think about 30k alpha and um you know from what i understand of beta eric's marketing it as an extension of alpha to address increased demand for people that miss kickstarter because it's still early stage a lot of people still don't even know this game exists so he feels like he needs yeah. to put more product out is the way i think i'm perceiving it is that how you look at it yeah so i mean it as far as i know it's the most successful kickstarter tcg of all time uh, by an order of magnitude. I think the record when we talked to Eric before the Kickstarter went live was a million. So he was aiming to hit a million and they hit four point whatever. Um, a couple questions danced throughout there. Like, I, in my opinion, I feel like the, the demand for sorcery, uh, like in terms of do you need beta at all? I, I think it's a no duh kind of moment because I don't think you're here and doing what he's doing if you don't think this is going to be successful. Um, and one of the biggest things I've seen that kills a game faster than anything is when you underprint a game early. Um, yeah. Because people are interested, they want to get in, they see that a box is $500 um, or unavailable period, they can't even get it to try it. And uh, by the time that more show up, interest is gone and they, they bounce off of the game. Um, and, you know, the number of people, and I, I agree with it, I think there is some amount of speculators in, and maybe a good number of speculators in the alpha realm. Um, but even if, let's just say half of those are actually people that bought them with the intent of not opening them themselves. Um, 
okay, let's say that's 15,000 boxes, right? Uh, my expectation is that the average player who was aware of sorcery when the Kickstarter was going on uh, is not capable or interested in buying enough sorcery to the point of exhaustion, right? Where I, my expectation would be the other 15,000 boxes of people that actually open the product and start playing are going to love the game, are going to want more of it, are going to want to keep playing sealed and draft, are going to be missing uniques and foils and curios and all that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. And they're going to want more. Um, yeah. And as soon as this game is physically in people's hands, I think there's going to be even more people that want it. Um, yeah. Just getting to see it, showing it to their friends, all that kind of stuff. Um, mm-hmm. And I also think the number of people willing to back a Kickstarter, back a Kickstarter TCG, back a Kickstarter TCG a year plus before they're going to get the product and spend three, six, nine, twelve hundred dollars on this product yeah. is minute compared to the eventual number of people that will be potentially interested in this game. And so mm-hmm. all these factors combined, like for me, I think the alpha is going to ship. And then I think there's going to be this huge wave of excitement because you're going to have yeah. a ton of people posting pictures. They're going to be talking mm-hmm. on discords. They're going to be playing game. They're going to be offering to teach other people. They're going to want more. I think their friends are going to want more. I think you're going to have all the innkeeper stores uh, stocking this product. I think there's going to be players who want more. Um, yeah. And I would expect that by the time beta is coming out, uh, there will be a lot of interest for this game. And so you don't want to not like if you just didn't even print it at all and you waited to alpha shipped to realize that you need to hit print. Yeah. Um, it you know it's going to be three four months before that stuff shows up at least um mm-hmm. and logistics in this day and age and in general and tabletop is very hard so all that to say uh to answer one of your questions were it me i wouldn't necessarily re- be quick to reveal print run numbers i mm-hmm. i don't i don't know i'm, I'm more of a mystery kind of guy anyway uh yeah. you know i like curios as well mm-hmm. uh and then you know i think uh we we were already part, part of why we launched the beta pre-order that we did is one of the most common questions we were getting was, hey, how do I how do I order or pre-order sorcery? Like, mm-hmm. is there going to be a beta? Can I get in? Can I get the alpha cards? Where can I, when can I order it? When can I order it? I mean, on the live yeah. streams and the Discord, via the community texting that we do and on the contact form that we have. Um, and I know the same was true of Eric. So there's there's a ton mm-hmm. of even already. I mean, the game isn't even out yet. We're, we're early, early, early days. Most yeah. of the games we've ever supported, no one would even be aware of them right now, right? Like mm-hmm. the month or two leading up to launch, there'd be a lot of marketing and hype and it would show up and people would learn to play it. And then then this conversation would start. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and so the fact that there's this much interest mm-hmm. in activity and we're this early, I mean, it's crazy. It's really just a crazy process. So anyways, mm-hmm. I wouldn't necessarily reveal numbers and I think it'd be crazy not to have beta coming as soon as possible. Uh, after yeah. alpha, just given the questions we've already been seeing. Uh, and again, it's not even out yet. I, I think once it comes out, a, a game mm-hmm. back in 2016 that came out, Star Wars Destiny, um, they announced it at Gen Con as Star Wars. And it was made by Fantasy Flight Games, who at the time is one of the biggest publishers of games that's not the big three. And when that got announced, uh, a lot of players, a lot of retailers were saying this game was going to be dead on arrival. Um, they had these big dice that kind of and the, the gameplay seemed somewhat simple. So people thought it was kind of a kid's game. Um, and they thought this game was just going to be dead on arrival. And then uh, a couple of weeks before the game came out, they had uh, pre-release kits they sent stores. It's like a starter and a booster pack or two for people that wanted to play in this tournament. 
Um, and then the the two weeks leading up to release, after those starters went out and people actually got to try the game, because uh, they they at Gen Con they sent us home with an early copy of the game, so we'd started playing it, and I fell in love with that game. Like I think that's still one of the best games of all time. Um, but once people started playing it, the growth and excitement and interest went crazy. Like all we had a bunch of YouTube videos up at the time, and mm-hmm. they were already in our minds successful. But then th- those last two weeks, the number of views that started rolling in on that content uh, was nuts. Mm-hmm. Um, so then what happened is demand actually got out of control. And wow. it was by that Monday after release, it was sold out everywhere. And you couldn't get wow. it. And you couldn't get it again mm-hmm. for another four or five months. And the amount of steam that that game lost because they had all this excitement that people couldn't buy into. Um, and that's one of the things like my, mm. if you're out there, whether sorcery or anyone else, and you're making a TCG. At least, at least take a bet on starters and pre-cons print a ton of those. Yeah. Because even if, even if when destiny went crazy, if they just had starters that you could buy to play the game that were good mm-hmm. and they were all the same. So you didn't need to buy a bunch of them. Like you, people wouldn't just like grossly buy, you know, 50 copies to get the one booster pack or something in it. Um, if there's a good starter that's available, that helps so much bridge a gap. If you have moments where you don't have product in stock. Um, and I think that's, that's a huge oversight because printing fixed Mm. starter products too is a lot cheaper than printing collated randomized booster packs. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, so anyways, all that to say, I think, uh, printing beta is uh, necessary and, and smart. Yeah, that's you made me think about something there. I think like the collector investor type tends to get overly fixated on the risk of oversupply um, and the secondary market impact that could happen. Like if prices start to plummet, you start losing those collector investor types, they'll walk away. And that should, certainly that is a risk. But if you undersupply and underprint, there's no one to play the game. Like there's no game, right? <laughs> yeah. It'll just, it's just over. So like, I like your idea that at a minimum, just print the shit out of the guns, <laughs> you know? <Yeah>. So, Cause <laughs> like, you always have that. Like, I don't know how e- easy it is to go to the China printer and just turn the key and say, Hey, I need like 10,000 more booster boxes. That's not trivial. And I don't think that's what Eric wants to do. So he's in like a tough predicament here where he has to try to forecast demand for the next year. Like, even if you factor in that Arthurian legends gets mixed in there, that's a new product. People presumably are still going to need the core alpha and beta as yeah. a fundamental underpinning of the desk or, or the decks. And then Arthurian legend mechanics and new cards and, you know, synergies and stuff will pile onto that. So how yeah. do you still get alpha and beta? You either have to have had printed enough of that via booster boxes, or you at minimum have like the pre-cons. So like anyone new to the game can at least get exposure to it, get it bide your time a little bit until revised comes out. You know, we think he's going to do revised most likely after Arthurian legends, but you got to survive that first year, right. And make sure it's available to the players at a reasonable price. Yeah. Um, and, you know, or, I think, otherwise it's game over for sure. So. I think it's, this hits on one of the core issues that happens for particularly smaller publishers of collectible games. Um, because as you said, if you overprint, uh, the, the value goes down really quickly because retailers have products on shelves and distributors have products on shelves and they're just trying to get it out, right? And so the prices go to the floor if demand's not there. Uh, they keep going to the floor until they're on the ground. Um, and then the inverse is also a problem where if you underprint too much, it's too collectible, it's too expensive, 
And the collectors might be happy who bought in at $150 a box or whatever. And they can suddenly sell, you know, we saw this with Fab, you know, before it popped off in August, September of 2020, mm -hmm. we were selling boxes, the first edition, the first two sets for like 75 bucks a box with a promo that was like a cold foil weapon. And by December of that year, those boxes are each two or $3,000 each. And the promo oh. weapons are two or $300 each. Mm. And so that's, you know, that they generated a ton of buzz and excitement. Um, and they were actually quick to get more product on the ground. But mm -hmm. at the same time, like that is something if you don't have a control on that can keep players out of the game and away from the game. And then the long-term collectability of something, if you underprint and the value goes really high, becomes lower because now demand goes down because the players aren't buying it and the, they aren't playing it. Uh, and so getting that right, yeah. especially because there's when you're printing collectible sets, there's lead times, uh, you know, 12, mm -hmm. 16, 20 weeks. Uh, it's yeah. very tough to print enough, but not so much that you damage the value of the product. Right. Uh, yep. Or, un, you know, how to how to balance that ratio It's a very tough problem. Right. And it particularly for the small publishers. Right. Because mm -hmm. they're they're now. Uh, you can't guarantee distributors are going to be interested. You don't, they're, they're not going to accurately market to stores to give you an expectation of how many boxes they actually need. They don't want to commit sure. to products till late. Um, mm -hmm. and so like, you know, when you're a sorcery compared to like magic gets to call the shots, like yeah. with distributors, here's what you got to do. If you want to sell it, here's all the rules. Mm -hmm. Um, and you know, magic might be printing millions of boxes yep. and if they're off by 50,000 boxes, it's not the end of the world. But if alpha for uh, sorcery is 30,000 boxes, like, okay, well, if you print 30,000 and demands only 10,000, you got a problem. If you print 30,000 yeah. and demands 100,000, you've got a problem. Mm -hmm. uh, and there's really no tools to tell you how, how much do you actually need, right? What is the market demand? Uh, right. So anyways, I, I don't necessarily have the answer, but that's a big quagmire in the old TCG yeah. space. I don't envy that problem because it's a... Your initial debut, it's 100% a shot of the dark. Even though you had four to five million dollars invested, um, thirty thousand boxes, really upper twenties with some margin. It, like the, the incremental customer is very hard to reach and get them yeah. to pull in. The company is not aggressively marketing, to say the least. <laughs> you know, <laughs> they're they're banking on I think network effect. Maybe they'll ramp it up after alpha release. I know Eric's philosophy is he doesn't want to pour gasoline on the flames when he doesn't have product to offer, you know? So that's yeah. why they're not aggressively leaning into marketing. And, you know, I could debate both sides of that. Cause I think you, it's, it is a hyper competitive market. You want to build awareness, but you do got to juggle, um, expectations of customers and, and things like that. They got enough on their plate. Right. So it's going to get out there and you got to kind of feel it out and see, and just hope that you kind of guess, right. Maybe your beta pre-order is given some insight. It's not a perfect data point because of the European costs and, you know, like a lot of people don't know who Team Covenant is, you know, so they don't even know you're offering a pre-order. A lot of people never even heard of sorcery. <laughs> yeah. So like once it's on the streets for Alpha, it could be insane demand. Once people discover the art and fall in love with it like we did, start playing the game and getting infatuated with like the realm of possibilities, um, they could have a massive surge in demand. So yeah. And even uh, I was mentioning yeah. earlier, like if let's say the average person bought, I don't know what three or four boxes. I watched one of your videos recently and you were breaking yeah. down the Kickstarter demand and stuff. Mm -hmm. And you know, there's, there's the whales that bought yeah. large numbers. So they skew all these numbers, but oh, yeah. <laughs> you know, if the average person bought, let's say two, three boxes, mm -hmm. 
you know, I, I think there's a world where you open your two or three boxes and you decide, I love this game. I'm going to buy two or three more boxes. And even earlier in our example, where let's say half the people are speculating and half are actually players. Um, mm -hmm. Well, the half that bought 15,000 suddenly say, hey, I think I want two or three more boxes. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, that's another 15, 20,000 boxes that without adding anybody new, right? Without friends, without me showing the game to anybody, without any marketing, yeah. without any retailers, without any distribution, without anything else going on. Um, mm -hmm. So it, it's really, I mean, it, Fab saw this and I use this example a lot, but before it exploded, uh, back when we first started, you know, interacting with it and selling it and doing content, there were, there were probably 50, 50 to 100 stores that cared about Fab at that time. Mm -hmm. um, and then things went crazy. And all of a sudden, you've got five, 6,000 stores trying to order Fab, right? And mm -hmm. if the average store even at orders 10 boxes, um, you know, when you had 100 stores, that's a different math uh, than when you have uh, 5,000 stores, right? And like, mm -hmm. very quickly, they play this little game too, where if a product's underprinted and they know it can sell and it's worth a lot and the whole thing, uh, they they know allocation happens, which is, you know, distributors will get, take all the orders from retail uh, endlessly. And then at a certain point, they'll say, okay, we only have enough to fulfill 70% of demand. So we're going to cut everyone's order by 30%. Um, yeah. And so a lot of retailers will order double, triple what they need from two or three different distributors so that a publisher now gets a number that is six times, right? What is actually going to be ordered from retailers. Uh, and suddenly you end up printing hundreds of thousands of boxes that you don't need. Uh, and yeah. then that's a whole problem. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you're right. I, that's a good point. I, I, you know, I'm surrounded like it by an echo chamber of sorcery fanboys in my community. So this is probably a biased take, but it's very rare that I find a person that regrets how much they bought in a Kickstarter. They want more. They're hoping the price isn't like $400 a box out of the gate. They want to see a plunge so they can buy more and then that should be the market <laughs> and stabilize it. Um, but people want more, right? So that's going to absorb some percentage of it. But then you have like the wild card of beta and like is beta as attractive as alpha? I mean, it's going to be like almost a reprint of alpha the way he's talking about it. You'll have different avatars, but predominantly it's going to be like an extension of alpha in a way. Um, so I don't know. It, it's, I think um, it'll be very interesting to see how it plays out. It's, it's very hard to predict. And then Arcarian Legends, initially they said late 2023, um, you know, schedules are slipping a bit. So I'm curious when that hits. <laughs> I'm yeah. anxious because like I've been, I don't know that anyone's looked at the art more than I have. And I've seen like a lot of sample card, like, by the way, on the sample cards, I like, I look at the, I look at the art constantly. It's on my website. You know, I push it out to Facebook constantly, try to keep just alive. But when I get see a sample card for the first time, like I have discovered things in the artwork that I'd never noticed before. So I yeah. think people are in for a real treat when they see the cards in person. It like takes on a whole new meaning and you start seeing some of the subtleties. The flip side of that coin, you have um, Ed Baird painting an extraordinary detail that like a printer cannot even possibly print all the detail in like the form factor of the card. So you have yeah. to see it in full art version and it really blow your mind. So, you know, the whole 100% hand traditional art is amazing too this you're gonna get artist interest and like art collector type interest which is not the norm for a tcg you know it's a lot of people sure. want to the digital arts so you're gonna build a different markets as well and that's another layer of unpredictability um are you gonna say something 
Oh, no, not, not necessarily. And I, I do okay. think that that's, uh, there's probably a higher percentage of, uh, you call them stonkers earlier, but, uh, in, <laughs> right. you know, would be investor types in, in the space. Yeah. speculators uh currently in the sorcery community than i think will be in six months mm -hmm. um and you have this you know intentionally on eric's side i think the lever that was the kickstarter is going to be alpha it's the only way to get alpha we're going to print to demand um and so you have some uncertainty around something like a beta um mm -hmm. and it's like hey you know I, someone the other day i saw was like concerned that there's gonna be less beta printed than alpha um yeah. and like you know it, the only people that are concerned about that are, are my expectation are speculators yeah i agree like you know i i bought a fair number of boxes on the kickstarter myself um mm -hmm. but i do don't care about what the secondary market value is right i'm a collector mm -hmm. uh, i think there's three parts of the triangle right there's player collector and we'll call them speculators yep um and there's a venn diagram i'm right there in the between the collector and player diagram mm -hmm. Um, so I bought what I bought and I'm planning on opening it and using it and seeing what we get and trading and that whole business. Um, mm -hmm. but realistically, like, I, I think a lot of the, the concern is probably unfounded, like in time, it's just uncertainty and every market, anyone that is in a market uncertainty is like the enemy, right? You mm -hmm. want to know, tell me exactly right. how much beta is getting printed. So I know how much to invest in alpha and how much to buy on the secondary <laughs> market. But like realistically, right. you just don't ever know, right? Like, yeah, I would love if I could go back to August of 2020. And like, so I was, uh, we had this bundle on our website and I was waiting to buy more fab first edition uh, because, because we were doing the bundle, we had these promos that we were giving out and I already had the promos because I bought boxes up front. And so I wasn't buying the bundle because I wanted us to run out of the promos first. And then once we were out of the promos, I was going to buy boxes, right? Hmm. Um, and that's just to, for me to get them as a player. And I always okay. talk about that moment because hmm. I was waiting, I was waiting, and then all of a sudden it's like, we can't get more from distribution. And then all of a sudden it's like, hey, this is actually out of print worldwide. And the hmm. boxes suddenly go from, you know, 80 bucks to 2000. And I'm like, oh my yeah. goodness, I was planning <laughs> on buying like so many of these boxes oh, man. uh and it, if i had had perfect information i would have bought a ton of boxes right but right um usually the things that end up if you, even if you are a speculator i guess my point the things that end up being the most valuable and like the really big wins are rarely things that you can predict or understand based on uh you know even if you knew the print run and and that kind of thing um so anyways it, it's just a almost uh like the, the friction that's getting created there is like i don't even think it matters like even if you had the perfect information mm -hmm. uh I, I don't think you're going to be able to make the the right bets um but we'll, right. we'll see we'll see how it all plays out yeah i mean at the end of the day the demand side of the equation i feel is more important than supply because over time that will absorb the supply if the game does very well and it resonates with the masses eventually that supply equation will settle out because the demand will absorb it so it's all about how good is the game how good is the product i think it's a home run at like one of the most brilliant artistic directors i've ever encountered it's a unicorn project he's doing all hand painted traditional art no one else is doing that so that's a massive differentiator that'll appeal to a lot of people and then the gameplay side is like we talked about that earlier well i think you know you got the advantage it's someone's secondary game and then, but like, is it a good enough game that they're going to take enough of an interest in to want to play it like on the side? And, um, 
you know, I'm around people that are early adopters, so they all love it, but <laughs> that they're not the mass market, you know, so it's yet to be seen, but I like, I'm encouraged by these antidotes of like competitive fab guys that are like, this is a legit game. It's not like an NFT and an art, it's an <laughs> NFT until it's printed. Right. But it's not yeah. an art project. It's, it's like a game on its yeah, own merit. So like, I'm always careful to carry to, to, um, caveat that because like I'm an art guy. Um, but I, cause I don't want to like dismiss the quality of the game. Everything I hear is that it's fun as hell to play, very flavorful, experiential, a good time. And that's what games are all about. Are you having fun or not? That's simple, yeah. right? Yeah. And I, I definitely, as someone who has leaned player more than anything else, um, it's a great game. I have a great time every time. I think it's doing things that are very different, and unique. I think the pacing of uh, the game itself in general is going to appeal to a lot of people. I think it it's, it can be a primary game for some people and a secondary game for a lot more. Uh, and that's rare. That's not a spot that a lot of games can actively uh, fulfill and, and leverage. But I think sorcery is is hitting all the right beats. So I'm I'm excited. Yeah. I think we're going to get six months from now, and I I'm expecting this to be a even way more successful than it is right now. Um, and that that's also the reality of like, I think the pond of players now is so fractional compared to what will exist in six to nine to 12 months. Um, mm -hmm. That, you know, if you're a player, that's exciting. If you're a retailer, even, I think that should be really exciting. Like, I think yeah. the potential of this game is very high. Um, but as we talked about earlier, I think it's very hard a lot of retailers that we saw this with Fab don't really want to get in a game unless they already know it's successful. Um, right. But so we'll we'll see how that plays out. But ultimately, I think we're probably just a fraction of the players that are going to exist in the next six to twelve months. And I'm just so ready for everyone else to have it in their hands and to be playing it, uh, mm -hmm. and to see that growth of the community and that excitement uh, for the yeah. game because I it is a treat. I, I think people are going to have a lot of really good times with this game. Yep. Yeah, I think we're, we're at a tenuous time with retailers. I mean, you guys are the only ones offering the product at the minute or at the moment and other retailers don't know, like they know they're going to get it. Eric said that, although Eric talks in the discord, not always through the Kickstarter campaign, campaign page, not always directly to retailers. So I think a lot of retailers are literally completely in the dark and just like, what the hell's going on with this game? So that's yeah. got to kind of unfold. I think we need to be patient and probably in the next month or two, we'll get more information. And then that's that's the next step for this game in my mind. Like you got to get more retailers on board to hit more communities. Um, you, I'm sure you guys will do very well. Sounds like you're optimistic. So I'm going to read into your words that there's interest <laughs> there without putting you on the spot. And then when yeah. other retailers have it, they're ready to endorse it. They want to learn it. I've talked to some stores myself. I've you know sold some guys paintings and things, and they're going to they want to buy sorcery artwork and paintings. And two stores I've sold like two major art pieces to recently, and they're, they're going to hang the, the original painting in their store. So they're That's primed awesome. and ready to support the game. They're excited about it. And like, like you say, it's tough for a retailer to buy into a Kickstarter and take that risk until it's proven successful. So I look forward to like when more information come out, the community will know where to, where they can buy it. Retailers will have the confidence that this game is legitimate and it's accessible. And then it'll, I think it'll real boon, really boon. Um, once people have it in hand. So just yeah, gotta be a little patient to see how that unfolds. But I think, I think it's worth reiterating too. Like you said something earlier that I think is accurate, which is, uh, you know, I'm quoting you quoting Eric. So I don't know what was actually said, <laughs> but about not wanting to put uh, gas on the, the fire before the fire's there. 
Yeah, that, that's um, not a direct quote. It's me paraphrasing. But like, yeah, he's, I, he's reluctant to market because he doesn't have product to offer, or at least like yeah. really lean into marketing, I should say. He's so leveraging I, his content creators like you and I and others, right? Yeah, sure. Um, but I, I would say like, it's it's not, to me, it's not expected or traditional for a publisher to be actively promoting or engaging with retailers yet. Um, and, you know, there's this whole part of it is we're just very early. The other part is that you have to go through distribution to get to retailers to, traditionally. So a lot of times retailers don't really get apprised of games until like the within a month of them coming out uh, through distribution. So the fact that there's any retailers that are aware of it already is a very good sign that Eric has been doing early something, right? And part of that's Kickstarter and part of it's just in general. Um, but my expectation would be, you know, we're doing that beta pre-order through the end of March and then uh, expecting alpha. I don't know when that's going to happen, but then beta coming at some point a couple months later. Um, and I think that as we get closer to actual release, I would assume through distribution and through Eric, the amount of information that retailers are going to get is going to be a lot higher. Um, and then on top of that, it's also uh, a lot of times retailers, most retailers won't care until they can actually have a product to buy and sell. And so, uh, sure. you know, there's a lot of stuff going on, I'm sure, to get the product out the door on Eric's side right now mm -hmm. and to get everything prepared and to get all the art done to have everything rolling. Um, and so, uh, you know, if there is any gaps in communication, even now, uh, I don't even really see them as gaps because I, I, as a retailer, would not be expecting information or much information yet at all, right? Like okay. traditionally, I would hear about a game uh, from distribution a month before it releases. And then I would kind of get to make a decision. Do I want to buy in? Do I want to have it in stock? Are there going to be events that I can host and that kind of thing? Mm -hmm. um, so we'll see how it all plays out. But I, I do think part of any any would-be friction comes from the fact that we are just so early still. Um, sure. And it's not a normal... We are talking about this before the, the stream. Yeah. I think it's a atypical for uh, some of the stuff people are expecting to have right now. Uh, to be available for players and for publishers. Because again, hmm. the Kickstarter isn't even shipping yet, let alone right. the full-blown retail release uh, of this product. So yeah. I, I totally get it. And, you know, we'll get there. We're almost at the end of February. Uh, so March, April, hopefully mm -hmm. we start seeing some uh, alpha show up. We'll see. I don't know. I'm, yeah. I'm just no, yeah, that's my a good head point you made. Like, we got to remind ourselves that Kickstarter isn't the big go-to-market product. I mean, the, the beauty of Kickstarter is that it, it does, it is like a big publicity move. It's like your first exposure to people that get into the very early infancy of a game. Um, so there's a lot of marketing benefit that goes with that. But alpha and Kickstarter fulfillment is not the mainstream release. It's And beta is actually not necessarily it either. I think it's an extension of alpha. It's your first like initial increment of growth. And then you have our theory, but somewhere in there, I think revised is really going to be the big go to market release. We're hopefully between, you know, not, definitely not a little bit like beta, maybe our theory stores pick it up, but then revised, there should be enough exposure and marketing momentum to then hopefully hit a big mass market with revised and get that big, big leg of growth. So yeah, it's interesting insight that you usually hear about it from you know, the mainstream distributors about a month out. And then that's when retailers crash on uh, what is this game? How do you play it? Learn so they can, you know, advocate to their community. Yeah. Game and, and, you know, I think at that moment too, 
if you have a robust Discord channel, if you have a bunch of YouTube videos from different content creators, if you have an active community, yeah. those are all really good things that a retailer would look for, right? It's like, how big right. is the Facebook group? How big is the Reddit channel? How active are these things? Um, and like I said, I think yeah. through a Kickstarter, even through our beta pre-order, even through anything right now in the would-be beta release, I think the actual number of people that will end up being interested in this game, it's nowhere near the top where we're at right now. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, my my expectation is the game will, beta will come out and retailers have access to the product and there will be an opportunity for uh, them to onboard and sell products to a ton of new players um, and a ton mm -hmm. of players that bought alpha but want more. And I think that's going to be a lot of those people looking for that product. Yep. Yeah, it's interesting. You talk about like community size. You know, I started the, the Facebook um, fan page and there's like almost 1400 people. So I, like I was getting frustrated. I was like, why isn't it 2000, 3000, 5000? You know, like I want it to grow like big. But then I started looking at other games and they got like 150 people in there. It's unbelievable. Like games that are already yeah. out. So yeah. <laughs> I don't know, maybe Facebook's too like boomer, like old heads, you know, and that's just not the forum these days. But I think 1400 is pretty damn good. Like you say, this is like massive early awareness and publicity without the company really leaning too heavily into marketing. They're letting the community do it and it's growing through word of mouth. So yeah. it's on and a good footing. Yeah. Honestly, the the moment that people have the game in their hands, um, mm -hmm. I would expect a huge wave of growth. Like oh, yeah. beyond, way beyond where we're at. We'll see. Yep. Yeah, this isn't a game you look at on online and get the same feels of the cards in hand you know <laughs> it's good with with the caliber and quality of the art the design of the card itself that it's like almost full even on the text box side of the card it's unique and it you know it just feels high quality and really cool when you see it yeah so, i'm super right, excited man. for it yeah i've been holding you up almost hour and 40 minutes here so appreciate your uh, patience and your time Really, uh, really cool insights. It's always great getting a retail perspective and like a hardcore gamer perspective. I learned a lot, um, which I'm always eager to hear from someone that knows games. Yeah, well, uh, yep. I really appreciate uh, you having me, and I've I've been enjoying. So, we were streaming four or five days a week since the start of the pandemic, uh, but even historically, mm -hmm. like we create a lot of content, we play a lot of games. It's our business, so um, don't often consume a lot of content around tabletop gaming. Uh, but I have watched a, a good amount of your content. And oh, um, cool. I, I, I know as someone who creates content, the amount of the work that goes into it, and I know you've got a job and you've got kids and a, a family. Yeah. Um, so kudos to you for for putting in the work and putting in the effort. I think people that create content in the community are a huge, huge uh, part of what makes these communities so enjoyable to be a part of. And uh, you really are the heartbeat of the community, uh, you and everyone else making content out there. So thanks for doing it. Thanks for putting in the work. And if you're out here watching this and listening to it and you like what Mike's doing, uh, give him a pat on the back, leave him a good comment, like, and subscribe to his channel. Um, it goes a long way because it, it takes a ton of work to set all this up and to do all this. And if you appreciate what he's doing, I encourage you to, to say something about it. So thanks for having me, Mike. And I'm happy to be on anytime you want. And cannot wait for us to get this game in our hands. And hopefully at some point we can get a game uh, across the table from each other. Yeah, thanks, man. That'd be awesome. Yeah, I want to check out your 3.0. So let me know when that when that new uh, building's opening. <laughs> we will uh, we'll have some events worth attending once we open. I'll say that okay. much. Beautiful. So we'd love to have you. I'll try, we should try to get an artist over there, too. Middle of the country, great. huh? We'll, we'll find someone that's uh, in the general region. <laughs> love it. All right. Thanks, Zach. Appreciate it.
Thanks everybody for tuning in. Take care.